Volume Two, Chapter Twelve of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Volume Two, Chapter Twelve. Chiefly political. Do you think that you can really get in? said Jane eagerly. I know that my uncle said the liberal interest was much stronger in the boroughs of late, and you are really the fittest man they could have. I was quite pleased to hear from Tom that you are so soon appreciated. Of course, he is enthusiastic on the subject. I do not know if I am appreciated or not, but the boroughs are a little tired of a struggle between the conservative duke and the Whig earl, always resulting in some one being put up on both sides, to whom there were no strong objections and no strong recommendations. A mere nobody, in fact. "'You are popular in the county, are you not?' asked Jane. "'No, not exactly. I do not think I could possibly carry the county, even if I could afford the contest, for I am not considered a safe person for the landed interest. I gained some éclat on the road trusteeship by opening a road which was a great public convenience, but I lost more than I gained there by my allotments, which are looked on as a dangerous precedent.' The cottages make me popular with those who have no vote, and with the more enlightened class of farmers, but the old school of tenants object to them, and almost all the landlords fear that they may be asked to lay out money in the same way. On the whole I am considered rather a dangerous man in the county, but in the boroughs I am popular, I think. I have the character of being a man of the people, who has not lost sympathy with his class, and I can afford to give them my time and services, such as they are. "'If you do go in, you want to do so independently,' said Jane. "'Yes, I do, and here I risk my election. The Liberal Party want a certain vote, which they think they could secure better by sending up a stranger from the Reform Club, who knows little and cares less about the boroughs, than by supporting a man who will look into political and national questions for himself, and who will not be a mere partisan. If they mistrust me and send someone to divide the Liberal interest, I can only save the Swinton boroughs from the Duke's man by retiring.' "'But how foolish to divide the liberal interests,' said Jane. "'My dear Jane, you forget that his party is dearer to a party man than anything else. The question to be considered, and I want to see how your nice conscience will guide you through the bewildering mazes of political morality, is this. Whether it would be right to pledge myself to the party, in which case I am sure of my return, or to remain independent, and so make it very doubtful.' "'You cannot vote always with the Liberals, at least with the Liberals who form governments and oppositions,' said Jane. "'They are often in the wrong, and particularly so in the bestowal of patronage, which I suppose is a very important matter among party politicians. The appointments which the Whigs have made of late years have often been most shamefully actuated by family or party reasons, and not with a single eye to the public service. Many times the Conservatives are really more liberal than the Whigs, sometimes the whigs are more conservative than the tories it is of the first importance that there should be many men such as you in parliament who will watch over both parties and if this determined dualism is at work everywhere how are such men to get into the legislature but surely you could carry the boroughs you can speak can you not i don't know i never tried but i dare say i could beat mr fortescue the duke's candidate he has never opened his mouth in the house but to give his vote and on the hustings he made no figure Try the independent course by all means. You may be beaten, but then if you succeed you will be so much more useful. It will probably cost me a thousand pounds. It is shameful that the duty of serving one's country for nothing should be so dearly bought. If you get in, you must try to introduce some measure to reduce election expenses. 
a difficult matter. The objection of the Parliament, when once assembled, is to make it difficult and expensive to get in. To keep the candidature within the limits of a privileged body is considered a great safeguard. Not by me, or by you, said Jane. I want you to get in, because you know the feelings and the wants of the people who have no votes better than ninety-nine out of a hundred who are members of Parliament. Oh, Francis, I feel quite sure that if you exert yourself you can get in. And what is a thousand pounds? You have it to spare. I am doubtful, said Francis, shaking his head, if I can afford to go into Parliament. Have you not two thousand a year? And do not lawyers who can scarcely make a living go into Parliament? I am sure there is some perjury on the subject of proper qualification. But as perhaps the latter is unnecessary, it is the less matter. They go to increase their means, or their practice, or their influence, and generally take the first opportunity of accepting something better than the Chiltern Hundreds under government, said Francis. There must be something very wrong somewhere, if a country gentleman of your standing cannot afford to give his services to the House of Commons. Have you brought the requisition that was sent to you? said Jane. Yes. Do you really want to see it? I have it in my pocket, and if I really felt in earnest on the subject, I ought to communicate with Mr. Freeman, the Earl's political agent in London, to know how he will favour a man who would support the general policy of government, but who will hold himself free to vote against them whenever he sees them in the wrong. My only means of securing the Earl's influence is by convincing him that he cannot carry the burghs against Fortescue by such a man as he has to put up, and as I am rather doubtful on that point, I can scarcely assert it confidently. If he chooses to withhold his family interest, he can make me fail, but if it comes to the push, I would rather retire than let Fortescue get in. Electioneering, then, is very nice and difficult work, said Jane. Very difficult for the scrupulous, the sincere, and the far-seeing. Who are just the sort of people whom we want to see in Parliament. Whom you want to see, Jane, but not whom the two great parties wish to see. Then I should go to Mr. Freeman, do you think, with this requisition and a frank declaration of my principles, and hear what he says on the matter? If the Earl supports me, I may count on a majority of twenty, safe enough one, and, if not, I shall spend the thousand pounds in a glorious defeat, writing the boldest and most independent of addresses, making the most uncompromising speeches from the hustings, if I can find voice?' "'No fear of your finding voice, Francis,' said Jane warmly. "'Regardless of the savour of rotten eggs, undaunted by the sneers at my birth and breeding, the tales about my father, the jeers at my mother, and only retiring at the last moment, when I have said all that I have got to say, but which, I fear, my audience were not much in a mood to hear.' My own idea is that I should succeed better in the calm, argumentative debates in Parliament than as a hustings orator or a popular declaimer. Yes, you will, and you certainly should try the second, that you may attain the first. My uncle was asked to stand for these boroughs some ten years ago, but he was too crotchety, and could not write an address that was at all likely to be acceptable to the electors, so he gave up the contest before it began. Yet, you know, it would be well to have a few crotchety people in the House of Commons, the game of life, whether social or political, is not played by only two sets of black and red men, like chess or backgammon. "'I have met a gentleman at Miss Thompson's pretty frequently,' said Francis, who struck me as having the most remarkable qualifications for a member of Parliament. He has a habit of recurring to first principles, which is rather startling, but which always forces you to give reason for the faith that is in you, and which either confirms your opinion satisfactorily, or changes or modifies it. He has retired from business on about seven hundred pounds a year, which he has made in America, principally, has no family, no cares, and plenty of leisure, is the most upright of men, and knows more of the principles of jurisprudence and the details of commercial matters than any one I ever knew. 
but no constituency would choose him, and he cannot afford to throw away a thousand pounds for the privilege of having his say out. He is one of the electors of Swinton, and particularly anxious that I should contest the boroughs. His own vote he can answer for, but he boasts of no large following. Though he is a man who ought to exert mental influence, he is too far ahead to be popular. If I were to stand, and were to succeed, I will find him a most useful prompter, and with you to inspire enthusiasm for the public service, and this Mr. Sinclair to suggest principles and details, I ought to distinguish myself. I am quite sure that you will, said Jane, so my advice is to lose no time in seeing Mr. Freeman. I cannot believe that people who call themselves liberal can act so illiberally as to endeavour to stifle independence. You will tell me a different tale to-morrow. Francis did as Jane advised him, and as he himself thought he should do, and waited on Mr. Freeman. It happened to be a time of a lull in party politics. There was no question strongly before the public mind on which Whigs and Tories were so equally pitted that one vote was of extreme importance. There was no near prospect of a change of ministry, and the great Whig houses had been much baited lately about their family selfishness and their party selfishness being quite as bad as that of the old Tory set. So it appeared to Mr. Freeman at the present crisis to be a very wise and expedient thing to offer support to an independent man like Mr. Hogarth, for it was very questionable if the Duke, who had been more liberal in his expenditure in the towns, would not carry it against a mere club man, and they had no better man to spare. Mr. Hogarth, at least, was sure to ask nothing of the government. His support, when they got it, would cost nothing. His adverse vote would only be on outside questions as a rule." It would look very well for the county election, which was to be a very tough affair between a younger son of the Duke and a younger brother of the Earl, that Mr. Hogarth, of Cross Hall, should have the Earl's cordial support in the boroughs. His vote was secure for the Honourable James, and all those he could influence, he hoped. Francis said he could answer for his own, but his tenants must please themselves. "'Oh, yes, certainly, but tenants generally find it for their advantage to vote with their landlord,' said the agent. I will give my tenants distinctly to understand that they must vote from conviction, and that that will please me. That is my view of being a liberal, said Francis. And if all the other county proprietors had the same view, the Honourable James would walk the course. But we must oppose all the stratagems of war to an enemy who takes every advantage, and strains to the utmost the influence of property and patronage. I want to go in with perfectly clean hands, said Francis. "'Bless you, so does everybody,' said the parliamentary agent. "'But somehow there is a lot of queer work must be done to get fairly seated on the benches.' "'I not only wish it, but I mean to do it,' said Mr. Hogarth. "'Well, well, I hope you will be able to manage it. I must introduce you to the Earl. I think he will say, as I say, that he will give you cordial support, so that the sooner you get your address out the better, as soon in the field as possible, and don't fall asleep over it. The other party are like weasels.' They are not to be caught napping, and will undermine what you fancy secure ground if you only give them a chance. The result of Francis's interview with the Earl was as satisfactory as that with the agent. Party, for once, was inclined to waive its high prerogative, and to allow a person to slip into Parliament without any pledge as to future action. His manner prepossessed the Earl. He received an invitation to dinner to meet a few political friends, and to talk over the canvas for the county, which was one on which all their strength was to be expended. Harriet Phillips was all the more interested in Mr. Hogarth when he had been invited to dinner with the peer of the realm, and stood a good chance of adding M.P., though only for a Scotch group of boroughs, to his name. Even Mrs. Phillips felt a little excited at the idea of a British member of Parliament, and seemed to view both Jane and Elsie with more favour than she had done before. 
while Mr. Phillips, anxious to do away with the impression of his first interview with Mr. Hogarth, was quietly and cordially hospitable, and hoped that the Swinton boroughs would return him, that they might have the pleasure of his society in London for the coming sessions. Francis spent a week or more in London, and promised Miss Phillips to pay a visit to her father in Derbyshire by and by. Mr. Brandon was completely at a discount, and as fairly out of the circle of Harriet's probable future life at Ashfield, as if he had sailed for Australia. End of chapter 12